We talk much here, as does the New Testament, about the church in a universal sense. I showed you the past several weeks in our sermon series called Ecclesia that the Bible uses language to describe both the local church, that is the believers in a smaller local gathering like this, as well as using language that describes a church comprised of all believers of all time. The universal church is the people of God from every generation, tribe, nation, and tongue, whom the Father has given as a precious gift to his son Jesus. We who are the spiritual members of the universal church are the body of Christ, who is our head. He is our unshakable foundation. He is our rock and our redeemer. He is our perfect, sinless, infallible example. He is our great high priest who sympathizes with us in our weakness. He is our ultimate sin sacrifice who absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf and purchased us by his blood. He is our final prophet, the one who speaks with final authority. He is king of kings. There is no one to whom we owe greater allegiance. He is our great love and our desire. Jesus is better than life. And a local church ought not do anything that is purely arbitrary. But we should seek to do everything in a way that is most pleasing to our Lord and our Master, Jesus. As we started this sermon series, I began by talking about the church and answered the question, what is the church? And I sought to show you from Scripture what church is. Today we shift our attention to leadership in a church, how a church is organized. And we first and foremost acknowledge that our chief shepherd, our ultimate final leader is Jesus Christ. And he's the one who sets for us the parameters of how we worship and what we ought to do in our organization and how we ought to live as a church and even how we ought to organize leadership at a local church level. Last week, we covered membership in a local church, and I told you that the pastors at the Mission Church want you to become a member at a Christ-exalting, God-breathing church. If you'd like to hear more about that, you can check that sermon and see why we think membership is in the New Testament as something for believers to seize hold of. We want for you to order your life in concert with a trusted church, because this is what our chief shepherd Jesus tells us to do. First week of the series, I put a slide up. I'm going to put that up for you right now. It's just a quick definition of what a church is, comprised of all the passages in the New Testament, hopefully a helpful summary of what it means to be a local church, that is, part of the universal church. A local church is a group of Christians who regularly gathers in Christ's name around worship, prayer, the ordinances, and the preaching of God's word, and organize life together as the family of God. So what does it mean to organize life together as the family of God? Well, the local church is not primarily an organization. It's not primarily an institution. It certainly should be organized. I'm going to go ahead and start our text this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you have your Bibles with you, you can go there. I'm going to read through verses 1 through 13. You can follow along. 
as we identify two prescribed leadership offices of the New Testament regarding church organization. I'm going to read this out loud, pray, and then dive in. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I know this morning much could be said about generally the organization of the church as we see it in the New Testament. I know also much could be said generally about elders and deacons as we're about to cover this morning. But Lord, this morning as, as we seek to try to give the, the, the simple summary, the simplest actionable summary of these things, I pray that you'd help me remain faithful to the text of the New Testament. I pray that we would do great honor to you and to your son, and that, Lord, you would give us your Holy Spirit to help us understand your word and to help empower us to live it out. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The New Testament describes many different spiritual gifts that Jesus has provided for his church through the Holy Spirit. We see lists of them in the New Testament, various different lists of how members of local churches demonstrate such gifts in service of a local body. But when it comes to offices of leadership, the New Testament specifically prescribes two for the local church today, elder and deacon. The passage that I just read for you right now is the clearest breakdown of these two roles in a quick summary. It gives the qualifications. It describes that these two roles will be distinct from one another and both helpful and needy for, needful for a church. And that's why we started there. The first office that's identified here is the office of overseer. Overseer. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. The word for overseer there in the Greek is episkopos, episkopos. And honestly, it's actually the word that's the derivative of where we end up getting the word bishop. Bishop is actually comes from episkopos. That's where we get that word. And throughout church history, this is why people have, have given that title to people in a church who are fulfilling the office of the overseer here. 
Not only is it the word we get for bishop, but it's also interchangeable with the word elder in the New Testament. It's interchangeable with elder. The word elder in the New Testament in Greek is presbyteros. Presbyteros is the New Testament word for elder. I want to show you a place that these two words are interchangeable with one another so you can see that this is the testament of Scripture. Titus 1, 5 through 9 is the other list of qualifications for overseers or elders in the church. Paul writes to the young leader Titus, this is what I, why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So we see here, this is not only the second list of qualifications, but it interchanges the words for elder and overseer. Now, if you were to peruse the whole New Testament, you'll find the word overseer shows up five times and the word elder shows up 66 times. So there's way more times that the office in the New Testament is called elder than overseer. But overseer, meaning one who rules or or exhibits some level of authority over a particular group, is what's being summarized in the language used with the elder. An elder is an overseer by definition in the New Testament. We typically use the term elder here at our church because it's used way more commonly in the New Testament than the word for overseer. There's another term that churches tend to use quite commonly that you might have heard, pastor. Where do pastors fit in with elder, overseer? Well, pastor is also a term that is applied to elder overseers in the New Testament. Now, while this is not given us explicitly in the New Testament and that it says call elders pastors, we see these ideas being used in concert with one another in a few places in the Bible. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 2 says this, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd, pastor, that's that word there, shepherd, pastor, the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. The elders are to pastor. That's what they do. Acts 20, verses 17 through 18, and then again in 28. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. This is Paul. And when they came to him, he said to them, one of the things, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock referring to the flock as sheep, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Here we see that even Paul, in the language he's using to the elders at Ephesus, he's referring to the church as the flock, and the ones who are to guard, watch over the flock, shepherd that flock, are the elders. So when we call someone today a pastor, we're not referring primarily to the title of an office as we are to a function of the office of elder. This may be similar to the word preacher. We call someone preacher. Call him preacher not because it's a title, but because it's a function of what the person preaching is doing. The primary calling of an elder, pastor, overseer in a local church is to shepherd 
his people, is to guide, teach, provide an example for, coach, counsel, come alongside, care for the people of God. The two main lists that I showed you, the first in 1 Timothy 3 and the next one in Titus chapter 1, are lists of qualifications that must be met before a person can be put in the position of elder or pastor. It's called an office in the New Testament. That means it's a role that is needed for a local church. And in order for a local church to be run appropriately, according to the Bible, one must meet those qualifications sufficiently enough to be a pastor, elder, overseer at that church. This is such a central part of a local church that it makes the short list of reasons for joining or not joining a church. A couple weeks ago, we talked about why doctrine matters in a church. We talked about how sometimes people divide over doctrine and that they unite over doctrine and that the New Testament teaches us that both of those things are certain in the New Testament era. That we should expect that our doctrine will necessarily divide from those who don't believe that Jesus is the Savior, who don't believe that you must believe in him for salvation and those things. But as we talked about doctrine, one of the things that I sought to make clear is that there really are just two things we think are absolutely necessary for a local church to be considered a qualified church, a church that we could recommend. They have to have the gospel and qualified leadership. There are lots of things that we may disagree upon, lots of things that we think are important that we might disagree upon. But we can acknowledge that that can be a God-honoring truth-preaching church if they have the gospel and preaching that rightly, and that's being preached by qualified leaders. Those two things. Trustworthy, biblically qualified leaders preaching the gospel is what's needed for us to feel confident that that's a church honoring God. Sometimes people say, I, I like that pastor. I get along with that one. You know, kind of like a stories or something about um, our relationship together. I like that, That's great, but it's not enough. It's not enough. God gave us lists of qualifications for a reason. That we would test our leaders to discern if it's someone who meets sufficiently those qualifications before we entrust ourselves and our families to their care. This is why we encourage at this church to get together with pastors here. This is why I ask all the time, you want to go to coffee? You want to go to lunch? You want to, want to do dinner together? We want people at our church to have access to pastors so that you can test out and vet whether or not they actually meet the qualifications. This is the kind of thing that I've been preparing you guys for in this whole sermon series, that someday many, if not most of you, are going to have to go find another church. It's going to happen. You're going to move to a new location. You're going to have missional responsibilities or reasons why God's calling you to a new place. And you're going to get up and you're going to get ready to go. And you're going to have to guess and determine how should I decide if that's a church worth joining. The Bible takes out the guesswork for us and gives us some very clear qualifications for leadership and tells us what the gospel is. My hope is that you'd be able to do that. You do that here and you do that wherever else you go. Test the leadership of a church to determine if you can follow those leaders. I was asked many times as I've been on the street sharing the gospel with Mormons, like, why don't you just, why don't you just embrace Mormonism? Why don't you just accept all of it? And there are, there are a hundred things that I, I could feel confident to say. And I, I sometimes draw upon all types of different things because the Bible tells us difference about the nature of God, of salvation, of man, of heaven, of hell, of the Bible, all of these things. 
Sometimes I draw quite simply when the, answer, when the question is, why can't you just follow the leaders of the Mormon church? I say, because they're not qualified. I can't follow what the Bible says is not qualified. I have no authority to follow someone the Bible says should not be leading in the church. It's critical. Some people ask, as you ought, why it is that us at the Mission Church and many Christian churches today, almost all Christian churches in history, don't have women pastors. Why don't Christian churches typically have women pastors? Why throughout history... And when I say throughout history, I mean prior to the sexual revolution, 99% of Christians only ever had male pastors and did that. Why? Why is it that Christian churches do that? And I bring this up knowing it's a hot button issue in our day because gender and sexual ethics and sexuality generally are a big deal and a cultural background, cultural battleground for us today. Here's why many Christian churches, to include the Mission Church, don't appoint female pastors. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. This for us would be enough. This would be sufficient if this was all that we had. We have more than this, but this would be enough. Paul gives instruction to Timothy in the exact same letter that I just read from you at the beginning. We were in 1 Timothy 3. This is just a few verses before in 1 Timothy 2. As he's setting up the qualifications for an elder, for a pastor, overseer, he begins by saying, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority. Two things that are demanded out of an elder in the New Testament. And this was it. This would be enough for us. In fact, Sometimes when we look at this, we can't help but wonder, like, man, how is, it that, how is it that churches, Christian churches, people who love God, who have the gospel, are going to heaven, how is it that people can see this verse and think, well, that, that doesn't really mean what it sounds like it means? Some people think, well, maybe this is just Paul's specific instruction to Timothy. Like, most of, most of the book of Timothy is written to all of us, but here he just means Timothy just for Ephesus, that's where he was, at this one particular time for reasons that he didn't give to Timothy, this particular season and place, I don't think you should have women teachers and exercising authority. But not only does it not say that, but elsewhere, Paul makes this clear that it's not just an expectation of a particular location. 2 Timothy 2, 2, he says, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That the authoritative teaching responsibilities, the preaching, the admonishment, the exhortation that is the nature of preaching that an elder carries is to be given to men. 1 Corinthians 14, 33 through 34, Paul writes, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. He's writing to Corinth and he's saying, this is true about all of the churches, all that can be called local churches, that actually meet the qualifications of being able to be called a true church. In all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. Now, previously in this passage, Paul defines speak and silent. He actually applies don't speak and be silent to men who are not in the position and for whatever reason in that particular local congregation didn't have a, an interpreter for prophecy or tongues present. That they should remain quiet and not to speak. This is given to men as well as women, but here it's given specifically to women in regards to the authoritative declaration and instruction given to the church. 
Specifically here is tongues and prophesying, if you want to read that passage for yourself. Women are not to preach to the gathered church. No authoritative directing of the believers in the church. And it is to be that, that case for all the churches of the saints. So silent doesn't mean she can't sneeze. Not speak doesn't mean she can't sing. But she may not deliver exhortation, authoritative directing, as Paul's been talking about in 1 Corinthians 14. This is why we land where we land. And we try to do this with the greatest charity. We don't find it something that we ache to box over. It's something that we feel bound by Scripture to do. Now, that doesn't mean I do it reluctantly, that the elders here are reluctant. Oh, we want to so bad, but we can't. No, we are aching to do what's honoring to God. And if we think this is what the Bible says, we want to do what's honoring to God. And we're willing to tell you exactly why and to make it clear. It's on our website. We have a full page where we give a bunch of uh, doctrinal convictions that you might want to know about before you think about making this church a church home for yourself. We want you to know it's not hidden for us. It's really clear. All throughout church history, churches have seen this as an important thing. And we want to acknowledge that as well. So here's the question. Is this really a big deal? Like, is this worth churches dividing over? Is this worth us arguing or fighting over? I mean, my goodness, the whole culture is going one particular direction in regards to sexuality, gender, all those kinds of ethics. Shouldn't we just get on board? No. No. I can think of at least two reasons why we ought not just let go of this one. First is, this is right now a major cultural battleground. It is. Our view on this unites us with all throughout church history, and I don't want to let the sexual revolution and some of the preceding components in history to lead to us abandoning what we've always seen as very clear in Scripture. It's important for a church to stand strong, particularly in the areas where the culture pushes against. Jesus says the the world's going to hate us. They're going to hate our beliefs. They're going to hate our doctrine. They're going to hate our organization. We can't let culture set the stage for what it means to be a citizen of heaven. We let our king do that. Why should we let this be a big enough deal to divide over? It's a major cultural background. And second, the Bible uses it as a litmus test for church leaders. Just a few verses after Paul says this, this is verses 33 through 34. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 37 through 38. If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. This isn't Paul's opinion. This isn't just to be accepted in Corinth and nowhere else. It says, as in all the churches of the saints, this is a command of God. You have to tell, you have to agree this is a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So not only can a church not be, not be considered a church led by qualified leaders if it's led by women pastors, it's also the kind of thing that churches, true churches of, of God, ought not recognize as a qualified church, what is not to be recognized as a qualified church. This is why at the Mission Church, we cannot recommend a church with a woman pastor. I want you to hear me very carefully here because I know this is hot button enough. I want you to hear the words. We believe that there are churches in this valley led by women pastors that have the gospel. Women who are Christians. Churches that want people to be saved and people are being saved in. We believe that. We believe that the New Testament tells us that we we may not recognize 
what a person will not recognize. If you're having trouble with this, if this is frustrating for you or a struggle for you, we're very patient with this. In other words, people can come here, can be a part of our church, can can be welcome to sit here and hear the teaching and disagree with this one. We're going to hold the line of what we believe Scripture says, but we want to help you. We want to walk through through this with you. We want to show you from the Scriptures. This isn't just some idea that a bunch of men came up because we wanted to maintain control. This is what we think is the most dignifying to women. I don't think there is a better way to value women than to do exactly what God says in regards to women and not expect that they do what God says they ought not do. That would be devaluing women. And I would argue that the Scripture specifically tells us that to put a woman in the place of a pastor is to devalue and de-dignify that woman and think wrongly of her. I have four daughters, and I certainly would not want them to be robbed of dignity in such a way. And that's where we are with that. I want you to come talk to us about this. Talk to one of the elders' wives about this. We're in unanimous agreement on this. We would love for you to hear and walk with us as to why we think this is important. But one of the other features of being an elder in the New Testament is that the office is designed to be filled by multiple men in a local church. We call this plurality of elders. Local church members are not to submit to just one guy, but to a plurality, a group, a a corporate congregation of elders who have met the qualifications and have been appointed because of the need of the church has arisen. And one of the reasons we think this is so clear in the Bible is because every time the word elder is used in the New Testament, referring to church leaders, it's used in the plural form every time. Unless it's referring to a specific elder, like someone by name, or it's referring to the generic office, it's always talked about as elders, elders of the church. Look a few places. Acts 14.23 says, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. It wasn't just one church that had a bunch of elders and others had a singular elder. All these churches, every church had multiple elders. It's one of the defining features of those churches. This is why I left you in Crete, Paul writes to Titus, so that you might put what remained into order. In what order? What order is needed? And appoint elders plural, in every town as I directed you. There are to be multiple elders. These, these leaders did not appoint a singular elder, but multiple elders, a plurality of them. For the record, this is why at the Mission Church, when we planted and slowly began adding the pieces and parts of what make a New Testament church a church, I was very hesitant when I was the sole pastor elder at the church, very hesitant to introduce membership Because I believe the New Testament makes it clear that what is designed for the New Testament church is multiple elders. I might have been wrong in the way that I had done that. But my hope was for you to see that you did not just have to submit yourselves to one guy and his interpretations of the text and his leadership and the organization of the church but that that would be a shared responsibility by multiple elders. And we did not appoint... uh, we did not uh, uh, do membership until we had three elders at this church. Just this morning, I, I was uh, texting back and forth with the elders at the church, and I was asking counsel, I was like, man, should I preach on this? The women, the women pastor thing. Should I, should, man, 
should that, should that make the cut today? I don't want to needlessly derail if someone's really sensitive about that. Would that be helpful? And it was, yeah, we think you do need to. If they had said no, Rich, maybe it wouldn't be the wisest right now. Let's come back to it another way, another time. I would have heeded that. Plurality of elders serves in such a way. I wanted the color of the church to be neon green. You can thank the elders for making it blue. Actually, I don't know if they did that. You can see what I'm saying? The idea that we want plurality of elders in making decisions about things far more important about color choices, but to guard and warn one another from false teaching or, or from, from unintentionally errant teaching and from, they need to give counsel to how to deal with difficult situations. The plurality of elders is what we see in the New Testament. And these elders are to be co-equal, co-equal. It means mutually in agreement, but mutually sharing the responsibilities and authority in the New Testament church. There's, not, there's, there's, there's only one set of qualifications for elders. Not elders who are the head elder and then the other elders who are the lesser elders. It is, it is elder. All have to meet the same qualifications to be there. But this does not mean that elders can't perform different functions. It does seem like the Bible tells us that there's different functions that certain elders might perform. First Timothy 5.17 says this, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. This seems to indicate that there were some elders who were particularly engaged in preaching and teaching, more so than other elders. Seems like that's the most likely way to see these kinds of things in the New Testament. They would divvy up the responsibilities of elder, of pastor, overseeing a church. What about the office of senior pastor? If you've been a Christian for very long or been at many churches, that's probably a term that you may be pretty familiar with, senior pastor. Senior, of course, even in those churches, doesn't typically mean the oldest pastor. Typically means the lead pastor. In fact, a lot of churches these days are starting to change out the the wording a little bit and drifting away from the senior pastor language to lead pastor language. Well, I do think that it actually is appropriate for there to be a professional clergyman. Those who who are able to give full time their energy and efforts to the preaching of the word, to the counseling of the peoples, to taking on the tasks that need to be done with the organizing of the church. So, so we run it at this church. Uh, I'm the only elder on our elder board right now that is paid by, in any way. The others are entirely volunteer, and that's the design right now. I take the, the, the brunt of most of the preaching. My, my energies throughout a week can be devoted to that more than doing a secular job and then finding time to, to prepare. I think we have a biblical precedent for there being certain elders who will be particularly engaged in the preaching and teaching. The New Testament, however, does not give more authority to one elder over the elders. I don't think this is a right way to view New Testament eldership. In other words, because I'm the one who's most seen as the representative voice of our church, because it was Laura and I who moved here to plant the church, been here the longest in that regard, because the amount of energy and time, thanks to those who have provided financially for us to be able to do it, I will be the one who will be delivering and teaching most commonly On our elder board at the Mission Church, we share agreement in authority. I'm not the chief elder. I'm one of the elders with particular responsibilities. This is actually why we have chosen to not use the term senior pastor or lead pastor at our church, just because we don't want it to be misleading. And for the record, no judgment on churches who do this. 
No judgment on churches who, who say, we do have that title, we do have that role, we think it's helpful for somebody to know who's the one who's going to be leading a lot of the pieces. I think that's fine. It's the reason we've chosen not to is for that reason. 1 Peter 5, 4, Peter refers to Jesus as the chief shepherd, which is quite literally the lead pastor. And so one of the ways we acknowledge that really clearly and loudly, and one of the reasons we say we don't want that term is for those things there, while other God-honoring churches might find that title helpful. This is elder, pastor, overseer. But pastor is not the only leadership office prescribed in the New Testament. As I read in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, verses 8 through 13, Paul tells us that we should have deacons and the qualifications given for deacons. I'll read that again. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The word deacon quite literally means servant. Servant. The word deacon is applied to many different people, even not offices in the church. It's actually applied to governing rulers in authority in Romans chapter 13. Deacon, leader, those who are to be servant leaders of the government. Deacon is a servant primarily. The main difference between an elder and a deacon is that the elder is specifically charged with the task of teaching. He must be able to teach, to defend good doctrine, to instruct and to rebuke where there is wrong thinking. That's the role of an elder. While deacon, and even in the list of these qualifications, are to serve in various areas of the church, not necessarily the teaching. Acts 6 gives us a bit of the prototype story of the first deacons in the church. The word deacon is used there as a, as a, as a, a, a verb as to what the uh, apostles were concerned they would have to be doing if they didn't find someone to fulfill that role. They were concerned in Acts 6 that some of the administrative functions of the church, the making sure that the distribution of food to the widows amongst the people was being done in an equitable way, the apostles said, we need people to do this who are trusted by the congregation, who are brought up, nominated by the congregation, who are qualified to be seen in this kind of way, that they can do these things so we can give ourselves to the prayer and the ministry of the word, as they say it. As a church, we are, at the Mission Church, eager to add deacons, to appoint deacons as need arises. Actually, next week at our member meeting, we're going to talk about this. We're actually going to address that issue and seek to appoint deacons in our church. Deacons are those who arise as need arises, just like in Acts 6. It was the kind of office that once a need was identified, they find qualified people to step into the role of that office. That's how we'll do it here at the church. We see a need for somebody to step into a particular role that may be deacon worthy. We'd like to appoint that person before this church. I want you to notice something about these qualifications, both for the elder and for the deacon. These qualifications are what is expected of all believers. 
In other words, there is not a higher standard of morality for elders and deacons. But there is an expectation that in order to be fit for the offices of elder or deacon, a person must meet those standards sufficiently enough to be a moral example for the church. The reason I bring this up is because there are many people in different backgrounds who think, well, it's not my, I don't have to be dignified. That's the pastor's job. Well, I don't have to be the husband of one wife. That's the pastor. It's okay if I'm a lover of money or if I get drunk all the time. That's the, I'm not a pastor. I don't have to do that. Listen, the, the whole idea of these qualifications is not that there's a second class or a second and third classes of Christians that are more spiritual and more high and mighty than the others, but that all ought to be living to those things but that clearly those who are going to lead need to already be exemplifying those things. I once heard a bunch of pastors in a pastor's gathering say to me as a young pastor, Rich, be careful, churches turn into their pastors. And what they meant by that is literally, I think one of them went on and says, your church will be 10 years from now what you are today. Here's what they meant. I think they were mostly true in the the essence of what they were getting at here. If the pastors, the, the, the leaders of a church, those delivering exhortation and teaching are sloppy with their theology, that will produce sloppy theology in the hearers. For two reasons, right? First, those will be taught and will, will hear that. Others who don't want sloppy theology will eventually go away and all that's left is those who are okay with it, right? You see how that works? Sloppy theology will produce sloppy theology. Prideful pastors, those who are not keeping their pride in check, who are the heroes of all their own stories, that's going to that's gonna invade the congregation. You're going to end up with people who have pride in their hearts. A lover of money produces lovers of money. You've seen the televangelist types who want to, God really wants you to give me money for my new Learjet. Really? What do you think the people are going to be looking for, seeking, desiring money, just like those leaders. A church turns into their pastors in very poor ways often. This is a humbling reminder that not only should there be a plurality in which we, we, we literally divide out responsibilities, we don't see one as the ultimate chief person in a particular local church. We spread that out amongst others, but we also time and again test and make sure that our pastors, our leaders, still are remaining qualified if they're to stay in that role. Now, I know that some of you may have had experiences in your life at abusive churches, churches that have abused the offices of church leadership in the New Testament. And so I want to to kind of land the plane today with a couple, I hope, to be helpful ways the Bible talks about the qualifications for a pastor. The New Testament, time and again, warns against abusive church leaders. And it tells us there's a right way and a wrong way for authority to be executed in a church. You don't just have to wonder. It actually tells us. And I'm going to break this down into two main parts. Into the disposition of a pastor, elder, overseer. And the practice of a pastor, elder, overseer. The first is in regards to the disposition of a pastor. The pastoral disposition. A pastor is to lead by willingly and joyfully serving Christ's church. That's the disposition. Let me prove these points to you. 1 Peter 5, 2 says this, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. 
He says, willingly, willingly. If you have a pastor who's like, man, I, oh, I hate being a pastor, but someone's got to do it. That's not going to bless you. That's not going to be good for you. It's a noble task to desire. There may be people right here now who God is, God is working on and placing into, into, into paths on in your life that will end up into all various forms of leadership and church all over. Who knows what kind of missional purposes. It's a good thing to desire and pastors to lead by willingly and joyfully serving Christ's church. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. Is that crazy? Hebrews 13, 17. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. If you have a joyless pastor, that is not an advantage to your church. In fact, if you were to sit under a pastor who had all joy robbed from him and wasn't able to have a sufficient level of joy and and exuberance and happiness about being able to experience the goodness of God in the pulpit and amongst the people and the kind of burdens that for whatever reason he was carrying got to be of a weight for a period of time that went on too long, he should step down. It's not an advantage to a church. For pastors to have no joy in their responsibilities. I want to encourage you and remind you of this. I want you to know, I take great joy in being a pastor. And that doesn't mean that every meeting I have, I, I, I'm looking forward to it. It doesn't mean that every little piece of pastoral ministry is something that I'm eager for. Sometimes it's hard. But I can tell you with confidence, I, I, I take joy in being your pastor. I love you and I want to serve you. I desire to be there for you. A pastor must lead by willingly and joyfully serving Christ's church. Jesus said in Matthew 20, 25 through 28, he calls his disciples together, and this is what he says to them. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, Jesus' teaching there applies to all believers all over, right? How much more those who are to be an example in modeling the things that the Bible tells us we ought to do, to serve. That's what a pastor ought to do. That's why we're not going to have a, a pastor's parking spot right up front. Not going to have those kinds of things. Because even if that can be done rightly, we want to be careful to, to portray and to convey by our decisions that the pastor is to serve. He's to serve with joy, willingly serve. I, I get to serve this church. There are many times people ask me a hard doctrinal question. The kind of question that takes longer than a single answer, single quick, quick type out answer. And I'm an imperfect pastor. But I I am encouraged by these kinds of teachings when I have to separate out time of what I was going to do on a given Wednesday and sit down and spend seven hours pounding through doctrines because people were asking hard questions that they need to apply to their life the next day. Your pastors may be in a position like I am, by God's grace, to be able to put energy and effort into things that will serve you where you might not be able to have the time, space, ability, access to tools that, that maybe we might. 
We want to serve you. Your pastor is here. I can say, not, not, for, not just for myself, I can tell you the pastors here want to serve you. They don't think of themselves first. They think of you first. And I believe that honestly. It's why their pastor's here. They think better of you than they do of themselves and take that role seriously. A pastor is to lead by willingly and joyfully serving Christ's church. Whose church is it? It's not the pastor's church. It's not even the member's church. It's Christ's church. The Bible tells us that, we, that, that as pastors we have to care for the church of God. Titus, Paul, in the book of Titus, refers to pastors as God's stewards, the stewards of the church of God. It's not yours. You're, you're helping and managing and organizing and caring for what's not yours. Any pastor sees it otherwise will not be serving his church well. Regarding pastoral practice, a pastor is to lead by his example and his teaching. A pastor is to lead by his example and his teaching. We spent a lot of time on this in our second sermon, Why Doctrine Matters. Titus 1.9 says of an elder, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. All over the New Testament, a primary role of the pastor is to shepherd his people by his teaching and by his example. James 3.1 says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Isn't that crazy? That means that in eternity, before God, God takes into account the office of the one before him in his judgments. Not many of you should become teachers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. God will judge preachers with greater strictness. Remember Jesus telling his disciples and, and telling the Pharisees who are hearing him nearby, woe to those who cause these little ones to sin. Temptation is sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. You sin yourself, you're under judgment. You cause others to sin, it's even worse. There is no truth that a pastor preaches that is his truth. If it is true, it's not his. He is to care for the body, a body that doesn't belong to him. And he is to lead by example and by teaching. So you need to join a church. You need to join a church where you can trust the leaders. And this trust is going to take a while to develop. And you're going to need to get to meet with and get to know some of the pastors there and ask the hard questions. I ask all the time when I meet people here who are are here, live in the area, thinking about maybe this becoming a church. They've been here for a couple of times. Hey, do you have any questions I can answer for you? What what doctrine things might be in your mind? Because it really will matter. It really will matter. Some of you will hear, no women pastors, I'm out. And you'll never come back because that's a deal breaker for you. I'd rather you hear that right off the bat than wait six months, two years, and then feel like you have to tear apart a church family because you can no longer by conviction remain there. Take your time, build trust. You're not going to find us at the mission church here throwing around the elder trump card. Like, just do, hey, we're in charge. We made the call, don't worry. We want to, as a leadership, be drama sponges for you. We want to absorb all kinds of church baggage that you bring in, all kinds of frustrations you have, all kinds of misunderstanding with doctrine, all manners of sins that as sinners you're going to carry in with you. Our desire to have a precision of language about doctrine and to be clear about what the Bible says and to carry it with conviction and to exhort and preach likewise does not mean that we expect every person to be with us on every point as soon as they walk in these doors. We want you here for the long haul to be patient with us 
And let us shepherd you. Let us lead by example and teaching willingly, joyfully as we serve you as the body of Christ. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I hope that this was a very practical and helpful sermon for those who may have never heard a sermon on leadership in the New Testament church. Father, my goal and hope in preaching these things is not just that they would serve us in this moment, but that we'd archive these things. We could go back to them and help draw upon them so that people would be able to see what you have called your New Testament church to look like. Lord, additionally, I would like for the people here to challenge, to hold to account their leadership at this church for as long as they are here. That members of this church would see as a mutual commitment with the church as one of those responsibilities, testing, checking in on, watching, seeing the example of their leaders. Father, help the leadership at this church to never lead people astray. Help us to stay true to your word that that the mission church exists as an organization for 100, 200, or five more years that you would be pleased with the way the leaders here seek to be like Jesus, our perfect chief shepherd. And we need your help and spiritual guidance for any of that to happen. We yield all these things to you as we ask these things. In Jesus' good name, amen.